So it is August 3rd, 2014. Our message today is called Right of Asylum and Blood Feuds. Right of Asylum and Blood Feuds. Turn with me to Genesis 4. Say there when you were there. When we get to our main text today, I will tell you and you can camp on it and then we'll put some other scriptures on the board. Until then, I say, would you go with me? Come on, will you go with me? In Genesis 4, starting in verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Man, can you hear that? Just like a daddy. What have you done? I came home and my dogs had destroyed my house. Apparently, Judah confined them in a bathroom that had doors that could be pushed open. They liberated themselves. They got loose, turned over every garbage can, found a jar of peanut butter, opened it, emptied it, walked through it, and then cleaned themselves on my mattress. I walked in and said, what have you done? And little Winston went and hid under the bed and run upstairs and all of the children said they did it. What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out. Somebody say cries out. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Do you know sometimes daddies just know stuff? I I stole my parents' Mazda B2200. I was stealthy. The thing accelerated from zero to 60 in about a calendar week. So I rolled it out the driveway. I pushed it down to the stop sign, and I started it, and I took off. And I had all the fun you can have with like 1.3 liters of uh, cubic displacement or engine displacement. And I was coming home. And I killed the engine, put it neutral, and coasted into the driveway. That's pretty smooth, isn't it? Come on, y'all not impressed? That's pretty smooth. I was only 12. And as my headlights came up to the, the house, my daddy was standing in the driveway. It was 3.45 in the morning. He didn't ask what I had done because it was pretty clear what I had done. In this case, Cain has killed his brother, but God knows it. The blood is crying out from the ground. Our sin and our guilt speaks a message, and a man's innocence also speaks a message. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Does that strike anybody as a serious whiner? Sullen? What do you think should happen if one man premeditates and kills another man in cold blood? Well, if you live in California, he ought to get a really long prison sentence in a luxury suite. If you live in Texas, you get killed by the government for doing this. God has said to him that the ground was going to resist his efforts now. He was going to be a wanderer, and he says that's too much for him. What an interesting thing. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. 
I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. You know, when you see the laws that are made in a nation, it tells you something about the nation, right? So here recently, my little Gabriel broke his arm in half. Hold up your arm, Gabe. And this happens when you climb in trees and elders tell you to watch out, you know. Uh, you should listen to your elders. Gabe was listening. The warning came at the same time as, as the fall, right? When we got into the emergency room, do you know what the first thing they did to Gabriel was? It's not giving morphine. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it was not to give him an ice pack. The first thing they did, and, and his arm was, was a fracture that left half of it on top of the other half. It was, it was nasty. First thing they did was, was right on his arm. Right one. An R. <laughs> and I'm like, what precipitated this practice? If we're going into surgery to amputate my left foot and they have to mark on my left foot with a Sharpie, this one. What caused that practice to have to come into being? Anybody spend any time in hospitals in here? I mean, I don't know why they keep the charts. Nobody, or do we have a nurse in the house today? Amen. <laughs> oh, no. It's the doctor's fault. Do we have a doctor in the house today other than, than King Jesus? Okay. I don't know why they keep those charts. They don't actually read them. And if you've ever stayed in a hospital with a loved one for very long, you find out it is a, it's a serious guesswork as to whether or not they're going to get their medicine on time, whether or not... They're going to be treated for the right thing. When you see a nation with certain laws, it tells you something about what has been going on in the nation. Why do we have a speed limit? Because people speed, right? Why do we have a law against murder? Why do we have a law against child pornography? Okay, our laws tell us something about what is going on in our nation, don't they? And when you set aside a law, like, say, it's happening right now at the Mexican border, that says something as well. What is the point of having laws if you don't enforce them? Is that not worth asking? The purpose of the law was that it came subsequent to an infraction. In other words, you make a law as a society when you see people doing things that are hurtful. And you make that law trying to prevent pain and destruction. Why did God make a law that if anybody hurt Cain, they'd have to deal with God. Why did God have to put a mark on Cain? I would say it's because in our sinful nature, we have a tendency to want to retaliate. We have a tendency to want revenge. The idea of a feud is like our native soil, if you will. Cain said, when people find out what I've done... If you send me out, they're going to want to hurt me. And then we would have a cyclical problem. If somebody hurt Cain, what would Cain's descendants do to him? You ever read about Lamech? He, he might hurt them. And then, of course, the relatives of whoever was injured last, they have an obligation to retaliate. Anybody watch Western movies? I mean, this is the theme of all. Anybody watch samurai movies? This is the theme of all of them. Because it's universal in human 
nature. Turn with me to Genesis 9. Are you with me so far? Good. If I already lost you, we're in serious problem. In Genesis 9, starting in verse 4, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. The living God, when man gets off of the boat and there's only eight people after the Noahic flood, institutes among the governments of men the necessity of capital punishment. If that cuts against your soul, I'm sorry. You need to square your soul with what the scripture says. It is not godly to leave those who murder other human beings unpunished. And the reason that God has to say this is there would be a tendency towards vigilante justice. There would be a tendency towards uh, overlooking uh, harm against mankind because it was difficult. There'd be a tendency for a great many things. So God instituted with only eight people on the planet the idea that even if an animal sheds the blood of a man, the animal is held responsible for it. And if man sheds man's blood, then man will shed man's blood. You're with me so far. Well, can we say that causes some problems? Once you open Pandora's box, once you say that if a murder occurs, then man has the right to deal with the murderer, then we have to decide how. All 50 states have come to different decisions about that. Different countries in the world have come to different decisions about that. And at different times in our history, we've had different decisions. But let me tell you where our history comes from. Start in Numbers 35 with me. Say there when you were there. In Numbers 35, we're going to pick up in the 16th verse. How do I know that this was not accidental? How do I know that this man intended to kill someone? Is there a difference between somebody breaks in your house and it's dark and there's a struggle and you kill them trying to defend your life as opposed to walking in the food court deciding that you don't like people with red hair and killing someone because they have red hair? Is there a difference? Here's what the book of Numbers says, starting in the 16th verse. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill and he strikes someone so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill and he hits someone so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when anyone meets him. He shall put him to death. If anyone with malice aforethought, it's a long word, say it with me, malice aforethought, shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if without hostility... Someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally 
or without seeing him, drops a stone on him that could kill him, and he dies. Then, since he was not his enemy, and he did not intend to harm him, the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to the regulations. Let me break this down for you a bit. If man's blood is shed, there must be an avenging of that blood. That's a biblical concept. It comes from number, or from Genesis 9, and it predates that in Genesis 4, and the very first generation of human beings that came from Adam and Eve. When we're dealing with how to avenge that, there is a difference between one that has a malice of forethought and one that doesn't. In our law today, that shows up in four criteria. Did you intend to kill the person? Did you intend to inflict grievous bodily harm? Maybe you weren't trying to kill him, but you were trying to come as close as possible. Did you show in reckless indifference to human life? Did you do something that was so heinous that you showed no concern for their life and it resulted in their death? And did you intent to, did you have intent to commit a dangerous felony, a burglary or a robbery and the resulting injury was a death. All of those things are showing something. You premeditated and meant to do what you did. Are you hearing me? This is an important thing. It came from Moses, but before Moses it came from Noah, and before Noah it came from God dealing with Cain and Abel. It has to do with how you deal with innocent blood that is shed. Has our nation shed some innocent blood? Our city is world-renowned for the largest abortion clinic in the United States. In the Bible, when they offered their children to Molech in the fire, God said he was the detestable God. Not God, the idol to which they were offering, Molech. He did not hold them guiltless. Does our nation have blood guilt? Of course. As human beings, how do we deal with guilt? Not just other people's, our own. It's important to understand this concept of avenger of blood is as natural as human history. Did you know that Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, I mean, think about who these two people are. We're talking about the year 1804. Alexander Hamilton was a founding father who helped write the U.S. Constitution and signed it. Aaron Burr was the third vice president under Jefferson and was a U.S. senator of New York at the time. Do you know how? Do you, do you know how these two men got into a fight that led to the death of the other? They decided because of political differences to hold a duel. Can you imagine? I mean, I would personally kind of like to see not a pistol duel, but I'd like to see a couple of the politicians step into the ring with each other and just see what happens. Right? <laughs> Like, I wonder whether... Yeah, I better stop that joke now. Um, in this time, it's important to note that Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton. And he killed him over a political difference. Now, what do you think the relatives of Alexander Hamilton thought about that? One of the greatest men in U.S. history killed in a duel. I imagine somebody wanted justice. Don't you? Is it an ungodly thing to want justice? Has anybody in here been stolen from? Has your house been broken into? 
Anybody in here steal anything? Don't raise your hands. Because everybody else who just raised their hands is going to look at you. And they might want justice. Justice is an interesting thing. If you're the one that committed the crime, you want mercy. If you're the one that the crime was committed against, you demand justice. I want to tell you, God demands both. He demands mercy and justice. And it seems as if the two cannot coincide. And yet, we find in the Bible they do perfectly. God has a holy desire for justice. Before we move on from there, these things didn't just happen in 1804. How many of you know who the Hatfields and the McCoys are? This, this picture on the screen is the Hatfields. I couldn't find a picture of the McCoys. I don't know what your family reunion looks like. But at theirs, they brought pistols and rifles. Before you laugh too hard, I do not descend from a noble line. At a family reunion in my family line, it would not be uncommon to find a rusted out El Camino with its back tires twice as wide as its front tires, lots of crumpled up paper bags, and gun racks in the back of pickup trucks. The Hatfields were from West Virginia. The McCoys were from Kentucky. And it seems that Asa McCoy was killed after the Civil War, he being a Union soldier, by the Hatfields who had been Confederates. Now, the Civil War had ended, but the feud had not ended. And the Hatfields hunted down and killed Asa McCoy. So the McCoys then waited for an opportunity, and it seems that there had been a theft of a local pig and some witnesses against the McCoys saying they did it, and the witnesses happened to be Hatfields, so the McCoys killed the witnesses. Can't we all just get along? So Rosianna McCoy decides she's going to bridge the gap. And in 1881, she falls in love with Johns Hatfield. Right? Great way to end a feud. Let two teenagers begin to cohabitate. What bad could come of that? It turns out that Rosianne got pregnant. And Johns Hatfield was no longer interested in her because he wanted to marry his first cousin. So after getting her pregnant, Johns left her. Well, that did not make the Hatfields very happy because the McCoys wanted to kill Johns for what he did. So in 1881, the Hatfields surrounded the McCoy cabin to prevent what they anticipated would be a future retaliation, and they open-fired on the cabin, killed all the children inside. This goes on and on and on so that the most famous feud in American history killed dozens and dozens of people over several generations. And remember what this goes back to? A war that had ended. Somebody say that's sad. Now, I know sometimes when I tend towards history, I lose you. And, and I get that. Last week, I taught on the evils uh, that confront the world, and among them, chiefly Islam. Uh, we certainly do not have a soft palate around here, and we do not shy away from the controversial. Let me touch a subject dear to my heart, not biblical, for a second. I absolutely love the old Western stories. And when I think of feuds, I couldn't help but think of this guy. 
His name's White Earp. How can you not like a mustache like that? He invented handlebars before there were handlebars. Now, depending on the side of history that you believe, Doc Holliday, White Earp, Morgan, his brother, Virgil, his brother, these are Earps, all showed up at a place called the OK Corral. And they killed a guy named Billy Clanton, another one named Frank McLowry, and his brother Tom McLowry. Now, some of you may have seen these events immortalized in the movie Tombstone. If you haven't, I can neither confirm nor deny my recommendation for that movie. But after the OK Corral, the most famous gunfight in the United States history, the fight was not over. Things have a tendency to carry on through the generations. Sin runs in families. Righteousness can too. So the McLowrys, who had been associated with a gang called the Cowboys, interesting name for a football team, particularly with its own legal problems, they maimed Virgil Earp and they killed Morgan Earp. How do you think that made Wyatt feel? Now... Everybody believes they're in the right at the time. So the OK Corral, the Earps were in the right, the McLowrys were in the wrong, according to the Earps. But if you hear the story from the McLowrys, it goes the other way, doesn't it? What do you do when municipalities and the federal government cannot decide? We're seeing that right now in our nation. In this case, the local municipality sided with the McLowrys and the federal government sided with the Earps. So wide Earp? Doc Holliday, Texas Jack, they decided to go after the Cowboys for what they did to the Earp family. And they killed dozens of them. Killed a guy named Mike Clanton, another named Ben Stilwell. So the local municipality deputized friends of the McLowrys. And the cycle continues. Johnny Ringo and Bill Brocious went after the Earps. Hundreds and hundreds of people died. And you know what we do now? We make movies out of it. Forgetting that they were real historical figures with real wives and real children. Because something in our nature loves a good feud. Tell me I'm not right. Why do we watch... I don't any longer. But why is UFC so popular? Why was professional boxing popular before that? Even though you know it's not real, why do you love professional wrestling? I don't know how anybody watches that anymore. Somebody yelled entertainment, and that's okay. That's exactly... We find it entertaining to watch feuds. You need to understand something, though. Our God is not like that. He laid out principles in His Word, and those principles begin to teach us something... And they teach us how to come to Christ. They teach us how to stay in Christ, the result of being in Christ, and what happens to those you lead to Christ. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 19. Say there when you're there. By the way, my excuse for watching a feud is it's history. I'm learning history. That's what's terrible about pastors. They know how to justify their own sin. At least in their own eyes, if no one else's, right? You've never been riding with a pastor and he was speeding? said, well, Elijah outran the chariots, y'all. You act like you've never been in a car with me. What's wrong with you? 
In Deuteronomy 19, I'd like to talk to you about something called the city of refuge. Starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located. Somebody say centrally Centrally. located. In the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads. Somebody say build roads. roads. To them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. Really? So these are just cities for murderers. Is that the idea? No, we're going to find out that these cities have very specific requirements based on the term malice aforethought. Did you intend to kill them? Were you trying to harm them and take their life? And there's a reason for this. But for now, I want to tell you that these cities had to be central. They had to have roads built to them, and they had to be in three parts of Israel. I'd like to put a map on the screen for a second so that you can see this and talk to you about centrality here. The Jordan River runs north and south through Israel. On the west, what you're seeing is the Mediterranean Sea. On the uh, far east, we are hemmed in by deserts and a couple enemies of Israel nationally. And right through the center is the Jordan River. At the top is the Sea of Galilee, and at the bottom is the Salt Sea. What I've done is I've drawn red lines. Can you all see the red lines? When I draw a red line in the sand, it's actually a red line in the sand. I mean it. On the left side of the Sea of Galilee, do you see the city Kadesh? And on the right side of the Sea of Galilee, do you see Golan? How interesting that the Golan Heights that are disputed today were originally a city of refuge, not warfare. Just beneath Golan, on the right side of the Jordan, do you see Ramoth Gilead? On the left side of the Jordan, Shechem, do you see that? Down at the bottom, south of Jerusalem, on the western side of the Sea of Salt, do you see Kiriath Arba or otherwise Hebron? And on the right side, do you see Bezer? The idea being, anywhere you were in Israel, whether you were on the left or the right side of the Jordan River, whether you were in the north, in the central part of the city, or in the south, God wanted you to have access to a city of refuge. Do you think they were important to Him? In 1 Timothy, could you put that on the screen? 1 Timothy 2, I want to show you verses 3 through 7. The way these cities are laid out says something about our God. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Now we're going to learn about God's intent, His motive. Who wants all men to be saved. How many men does our God want to be saved? If you're sitting in this room today, something very dangerous may have happened to you. You may believe that by being an American and knowing who the historical figure Jesus is, just like you know who White Earp is, In knowing the things that Jesus did, i.e., he died and was risen again, just like you know the things White Earp did. He went to the OK Corral. He shot Ben Stilwell. He fought with Brushy Bill Brocious. That somehow or another, you have been saved. Knowing about Jesus has never saved anyone. Any more than knowing where those cities are would save you. 
knowing their dimensions, knowing their populations, knowing what priest was in office. It may be an aid that could lead you to salvation, but it will not save you. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Go to the next verse. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The better question is not, do you know about Jesus? We can't even say, do you know Jesus anymore? Because everyone thinks they do. Is when did Jesus lay his hand upon you, his hand upon God, and deal with your guilt? You cannot come into the city of refuge unless guilt drove you there. So you don't understand, I was innocent. Wait, did you kill the man? Yes, yes. I'm innocent with an explanation. (laughs) I killed him, I just didn't mean to. When you were born, whether you meant to or not, you were born into sin. And the truth is, all of you have an awful lot of willful sin and an awful lot of unwillful sin. There are things you do just because. It's bad neural pathways, Curtis said. Maybe it's, maybe it's bad family habits. I don't know. In my family, they drink way too much. They just do. I think they're trying to numb out that inner conscience in their life. I know nobody out here knows what we're talking about. Some families, they smoke things. My family, they do both. They do all kinds of things. And you know what? Almost every one of them would say, I know Jesus. Did you know that James says even the demons know there's one God and they shudder at his name? What would that do for you, friend? Knowing who Jesus is... It's just like knowing where a city of refuge is. That does not place you inside the city. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Has the ransom been paid for you? The preachers have stood behind the pulpit and said the ransom's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. In one sense it has, and in a very personal sense, it has not if you have not met Jesus. If you've not had a divine visitation where you knew you were guilty and he personally relieved you of that debt, taking it upon himself, then you're still in your sins no matter what you know. You know, this kind of preaching is going by the wayside. I don't know when you'll get to hear it again. If the Holy Spirit's dealing with you now, have you ever considered that it might be the last time he ever deals with you? You know, the preacher trick is to say you could die in a car accident. Oh, you know what would be much worse than that? Is to continue to live but not have the Holy Spirit deal with you anymore. I would so much rather have a quick end if there was no hope for me than to live the rest of my life with God not dealing with me because I stiff-armed Him now. I want you to consider what it means about the heart of God that he wanted these cities located in every provenance, on every side of the river, in the lower half, in the middle half, and in the upper half. He is trying to make his justice and his mercy available to every human being, no matter where you live. Somebody say that's a good God. We're going to get into what causes you to run to one of these cities in a minute, but did you remember he said build roads to them? Now, I want to share with you a scripture that I'm going to confess today may be hard to see. I'd like you to, for a moment, imagine there was not a single institution made of brick and mortar, steeple and stained glass that had done terrible things in his name. Can we imagine a world like that for a second? 
Let's go back to the first century if that's what it takes and think of Jesus still in what you think of as a toga, leather sandals, and before Christianity had become a ridiculous business that lines pimps' pockets. With that in mind, turn with me to Isaiah 57. When you're there, say there. In Isaiah 57, we're going to pick up in verse 14. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of who? God wanted roads built. He wanted them built up so that they weren't obscure or hard to see. He wanted the obstacles moved out of the way of his people. And it will be said, build up, build up. Wouldn't it be great if the people of Christ were making it more obvious to find Christ, easier to find Christ? If our business was removing obstacles rather than laying the obstacles in front of people, we can stand around all day and blame the generations that went before us, or we can consider that God has us a part of his construction crew. For this is what the high and the lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. Where does he live? But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Tell me, is there anybody in here feels a little crushed by life? Oh, you would do so well to stay awake. You know, physical sleep right now might, might actually be an indication of spiritual slumber. What happens if you cross your hands, fold your hands, And poverty spiritually comes on you like a bandit. What happens if you wake up and your very soul is on fire? The living God doesn't want anyone to perish. Not not one person. He gave himself as a ransom for all men. And he says, build up the roads, build them up, prepare the way. Prepare the way for my people. He calls you his people even before you get there but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. God is not in the business of accusation only. He is here to breathe life into you. He did not make you so that you would be captive to sin. He did not make you with the desire to beat you up or beat you down. When he made you, he made you with the desire to have you full of life for you to multiply his presence all over the globe. He made you so that you would be in his image, spreading his image all over the globe. I want to apologize to you. I stand here so short of his image. But he's filling me with his spirit. And there is hope every moment, with every word, with every deed, with every act of faith demonstrated in love that we are displaying his image more and more and more. He wants to revive the heart of the contrite in here. He does not want to revive the heart of the stubborn, the stiff-necked, those who are bent on evil and have no interest in doing right. But if you're in here and you are broken by your situation, he wants to revive you. His prophets said so. He goes on to say, I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. When you think of the living God, do you think of an angry God? 
You know, these days, it might be more popular to say that we have a hippie God, some kind of weird, so loving God that he has no interest in justice. It is not true. He is interested in justice, and you will see that before this message is over without any question, but his purpose is not to put to death, it's to bring to life. For then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. Greed enrages God. Isn't that worth thinking on for a minute? So men that are appealing to your greed, men that are swimming in greed, men that are preaching out of greed, they enrage God. Now, I don't have to sit here and create that as a new doctrine. Isaiah said it in 720 BC. Shame on you if you put up with them. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on his willful ways. Can you imagine a father that wants to restore a son? that wants to breathe life in a son. Judah's working behind the camera, so y'all don't all turn and look at him or you'll be staring at the World Wide Web. I came home last night and he was frustrated. Transmission work will frustrate a man. Yeah, he was frustrated. And because his Jeep is uh, almost as old as Methuselah, uh, some of the bolts were frozen. And, um, you know, young men are strong. They're really... Strong, but they don't always know, you know, the advantages of things like a cheater pipe, Bosh. And um, then he got to learn the value of good tools versus, say, the ones that you buy that were forged in some other country and sold for pennies on the dollar because he shattered his sockets. So he worked all day, and he didn't complete his project. And when I got home from a missions trip, my son was frustrated, and he was angry. When you come home and you find an environment that is frustrated and angry, how do you react to it? Anybody? Somebody said force. Any others out there? Frustration. Hence the the blood feud problem. Do you love your son or or, or do you want to kill your son? Or is the answer and in both? (laughs) But as I sat down and I thought about it for a minute, I had no desire to be at war with my son. I wanted with all of my heart to enjoy his company. I wanted with all of my heart to be interested in what he was doing. I wanted him to be interested. If we, though we are evil, know how to be like that, how do you really think your father is? Do you think he has an interest in destroying you or helping you? See, I think he wants to help us. By the way, Judah and I finished the evening wonderful, laughing, cutting up. In fact, Judah, what would you get, about four hours sleep? Yeah, it's glorious, isn't it? We only get four, they're the best four hours you ever got. You appreciate them like nobody's business. I have seen his ways, but I will. I have seen his ways, but I will. I will guide him, restore and comfort him. Saints, I want you to understand. God is not ignorant of your ways. He's not uh, blind to them. He sees them, but he still wants to restore you and heal you. Now, let me ask you something. Does knowing that help you? Well, it helps you if you want to come to him. But if knowing that relieves you of the obligation in your heart and mind to do something about your ways and to come to him, then you've been deceived. It's not the man who hears the word who is justified in his presence. It is the man who does what he says. Do you know who is in the most danger 
those who are in church the most. You say, well, why is that true? Because week after week, you hear messages that you become numb to. Do you know how I know that? Because if I can sit in a room with six men and four of them sinned in the last two or three weeks in a terrible, habitual way. And I know what we've been preaching those weeks. And I know what the warnings are those weeks. I say they're in danger of slipping into hell and they don't know it. How do you sit today, I wonder? Our God centrally located the cities. He divided the nation into three parts so that nobody was too far from it. If you're on the wrong side of the river, anybody born on the wrong side of the tracks? He made sure there was a city near you because he loves you. It's not going to be possible to say I came from the wrong socioeconomic group. It's not going to be possible to say I was the wrong color, you know? These kind of weak entitled arguments today that make us all each other's victims ignore how great our God is. In Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 8, we find some other beautiful things about the city. How many of you would like to be in the city of God? How many of you have read about that great city descending upon the earth and you long for it? Oh, if you long for it, we need to see what kind of cities he builds. In Deuteronomy 19 and verse 8, If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your fathers and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk, somebody say walk, in all his ways. Then you are to set aside three more cities. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Three more cities. While we contemplate these two verses, I'd like to tell you that the number of cities started out as three and multiplied to six as they achieved more inheritance. Do you know why? Because God wanted to make sure there was enough refuge to go around. He wanted to make sure it was proportional to his population. He wanted to make sure that there would not be one human being anywhere that was seeking justice or mercy and couldn't find it. You know, I've been to places in the world where they've not heard about the goodness of our king. I've been to places in the world where they have no idea that he is world-renowned for healing the sick, for loving the poor. I've been to places in the world where they have never heard what we are lavished with every day. Does that disturb you or bother your soul? Because it bothers me. It bothers me that we can stand and cry out to God for a second coming. And most don't know about the first coming. That bothers me. I feel an obligation. Romans 5.18, keep your finger in Deuteronomy. We're going to be there, but could you put Romans 5.18 on the screen? Romans 5.18 says it this way. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for how many? Jesus' one act 
is proportional to the population. Jesus' one act is sufficient for all. Jesus' one act is enough to be a ransom for all men, but not all men have received that ransom. In fact, many don't even know about it, and some have been told about it so much that we think we have it simply having heard about it. You know, the Sanhedrin was on to something. You know, they were both religious leaders and politicians. Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, I know our politicians believe they're minor deities, but these guys actually represented God. Do you know that the Sanhedrin had rules about building roads to these cities? They had to be 32 cubits wide. There was no river between any city and the refuge that did not have a bridge. There was no mountain between any city and the city of refuge that did not have a pass through the mountain. And outside every city, the Sanhedrin paid for two teachers of the law to stand and arbitrate for anyone who was trying to get to the city but was under attack. What an amazing thing. They understood the heart of God. These cities became, quite literally, refuges that we sing songs about. There were times in Israel's history. Have you ever read the book of Kings? There were time periods, especially Second Kings, time periods in Israel's history where you did something so egregious. I killed Matthew and Cody standing beside me, so I couldn't get to a city. Where did they run? To the horns of God's altar. <laughs> if you're going to kill me, you're going to have to kill me while on God's altar. Even with I mean, Joab, a mighty man of God. Well, I don't know about that. A mighty man, sometimes for God. When he did wicked things. He killed people at the altar and he went and hid at the altar. But what does that say? Even if there wasn't a city close by, if you could just get somewhere associated with his name, maybe there would be mercy there. Of course, if you wanted justice, where did you go to pray? You went to the very same altar, didn't you? God's name, his authority, his reputation were always associated with both. But it wasn't enough to know about it. You had to be in it. I want you to notice that in Deuteronomy 19, it speaks of a reward for obedience. The Lord your God enlarges your territory as He promised on oath to your forefathers and gives you the whole land He promised them because... Somebody say, because... Because you carefully follow all these laws. In other words, obedience came with a blessing. When you obeyed the laws, God enlarged your territory. Some have twisted that to the point where they think that their monetary holdings are a reward for their obedience. I I say that's foolishness. God was not interested in increasing their money. He was interested in increasing justice and mercy. The point of these cities was justice and mercy. And I want you to understand that justice was increasing if they obeyed God's law. Have you ever read Isaiah 42? Put Isaiah 42.1 on the screen. Listen to how the servant of the Lord begins, how the very passage we use to speak of Jesus is, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Why? I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice 
to the nations. The living God wants His justice as centrally located to all human beings as possible. He wants roads built that become highways for God's people to march towards His justice and march towards His mercy. He is not at all interested in simply having a bunch of people who know a lot about Him and act nothing like Him. Where would the justice be in that? Where would the mercy be in that? Did you notice one other thing about the 8th verse? The 8th verse says, If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as He promised on oath to your forefathers. When God started the nation that would represent Him, He said two things about it. Your obedience will cause you to enlarge. As you enlarge, I want more cities of refuge proportionate to the way that you're being enlarged. And by the way, I promised your forefathers this is what would happen. Do you know what he's literally saying? He's literally saying, I need justice on the earth and it has to start somewhere. I need mercy on the earth and it has to start somewhere. And as you obey me, it's going to grow in every direction. And as it does, you multiply the centers of justice and mercy so that the whole world will see the increase. This is what I promised your fathers. In Genesis 12, didn't the patriarch Abraham receive a promise that said he would be a blessing to all nations? All nations would be blessed through him. Didn't he receive that? This is how it would go. As one man taught his family and they acted justly, and they loved mercy, and they walked humbly with their God. As one man did that, it could affect the whole nation. As a nation did it, it could affect the whole world. What difference can you make? How many people do you sincerely know that are interested in your welfare above their own? (laughs) Would that list fit in a book of 50 pages? Would that list fit in a book of 10 pages? Could you put all those names on a single page? I want you to consider something then. How many people do you think your neighbor knows that legitimately will put their concerns above their own? Are you hearing me? If you only know a handful of people you believe would do what Christ does regarding you, how many do you think your neighbor knows? But when we introduce ourselves to them, when we build a road between us, when we remove the obstacles that somebody else laid in their path, maybe a priest did something immoral to them. Maybe somewhere in their church family they were hurt. Maybe somewhere along the way they received a lie about God and now they no longer have access to that refuge. Maybe we can build up the road and remove the obstacle. If you, surrounded by this kind of Christian body, only know a handful of people that if it was your life or theirs would offer their life instead of yours, how many do you think your neighbors know? And that's in a Christian country. What would happen if you went with me to India or to Sri Lanka where they're all Buddhist? What would happen? Church, we have people sitting in here. I asked one young man during worship, what do you know about Jesus? He said, I'm really new to all of this. Amen, that's the best kind. I'll take the new soft hearts that need to be healed as opposed to the old hard ones that are broken and don't even know it. 
while dealing with some sickening sin this week in frustration. I just leaned across the table and said, from now on, when people ask me, Pastor, why do you preach such harsh things? I'm going to give them your phone number. They can call you. When you repent, I'll start preaching nice things. The problem is they all repented, and I'm still working at it. I love this body. I'm proud of the roads that we're building, but our work is not nearly, nearly done. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10. Shouldn't have to turn far. I think your finger's there. (coughs) Do this so that no innocent blood... I'm sorry. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed on your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and assaults and kills him, then flees to one of these cities. The elder in his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Oh, my goodness. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. If in the first area we were talking about accessibility, God wanted these cities centrally located. He wanted roads built to them. He wanted them in the three halves or or thirds of Israel, rather. And in the second section, we were talking about sufficiency. He wanted to make sure that there was enough ransom for all men. There was enough refuge for all men. Then certainly in this section, we can be talking about nothing other than justice. He's talking about blood guilt. What do you do when the ground is crying out with blood guilt? First, we need to recognize it comes from certain things. Did you catch this? But if a man hates his neighbor, what's that lead to? Lying in wait for him. What's that lead to? Assaulting him. And what does that lead to? The first thing you need to know is that blood guilt is premeditated when there's the principle of escalation. When you are thinking on a subject, contemplating doing it, and then you take your first step towards it, every step you take towards something you know is wrong is making you more and more guilty. Say, but I stopped short of going the whole way, but you made it three quarters of the way to blood guilt. Maybe this is why in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, Jesus spoke the things that he spoke about if a man looks at a woman lustfully, if a man hates his neighbor. They understood that there was a connection between what is called the light thing and what is called the heavy thing. You may say, Pastor, I know about Jesus, and I'm not involved in, in the kind of sin that they are. Are you planning it and you just haven't carried it out yet? Are you sexually pure for lack of opportunity? Are you sexually pure because you want to honor your king? Or is there anybody left sexually pure? Somewhere along the way, we need to recognize that it will not go unpunished when we premeditate our sin. And that God wanted there to be a way for every person to deal with sin. You know, if you're planning on sinning tomorrow and you think grace covers that, you have turned, as Jude said, grace into a license for morality. But as the book of Titus says, 
Grace has appeared to all men and teaches us to do what? Say no to ungodliness. You know what grace is? It's that there's a refuge that you can hide in, that you don't have to be in a cycle of blood feud, that you have a place of asylum. You have a right to asylum. You can say it stops here. Romans 1.32 speaks of not only the most abhorrent sin that we now call alternate lifestyle and 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 refer to just as if it's some strange kind of choice, but it has this unique phrase in it. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It has to be noted that when we're dealing with blood guilt, premeditation is a part of it, but you know what else is? Refusing to purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood. If you tolerate sin, it is the same as you doing sin. Are you hearing me? If you stand next to the man who is murdering someone, what does that make you? An accomplice. If you drive the getaway car for the bank robber, how is that any different? If you enable someone's sin, don't think that you are not guilty of it. Oh, I'm, this is probably going to hurt. You might all get mad, and as I, you're probably already mad. Parents, listen to me. Your kids that are not really kids anymore, your 20 and 30 and 35-year-old kids who still live at home and still live on the family support system, if you are enabling them to sin, you're as guilty as they are, no matter how holy you think you are. You know who says that? The Apostle Paul says it in the book of Romans. We have to purge evil from among us. And that seems so mean. Somebody said that seems mean. It does. Except that God put a refuge accessible to every single person. And if you allow them to believe they're in the refuge when they're really out of the refuge, you are harming them and not helping them. I've seen more people say that they were just protecting Someone. Let's for argument's sake say it's a 22-year-old daughter that you don't want to push into the hands of her boyfriend, but she only sleeps in your house two nights a week and you deceive yourself and say, I'm sure that it's, it's all okay. There's not really a morality going on there. You are lying to yourself and enabling her to live in a way that the Bible says will kill her. And worse than that, you are teaching her that knowing about the city of refuge is the same as being in the city of refuge. Oh, are y'all hearing me? I want, I want with all of my heart to remove the obstacles. But if everybody's in the city of refuge, no matter how they're acting, that in itself is an obstacle. Are you hearing me? Do you know what God called the way? He called it the way of holiness. The way of righteousness. He said no wicked fool would go about on it. It's Isaiah 35. He said that it would be a raised area in the desert. In other words, in every area of Israel, you would be able to see a way to the refuge. Who did he say to remove the obstacles to? He said out of the way of his people. He's calling. Does your life lay an obstacle or remove an obstacle? Turn with me to Joshua 20. In Joshua 20, starting in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Joshua, 
Tell the Israelites to designate the city of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. What did God want? When you were guilty of killing somebody, but you didn't mean to, He wanted you to have a way out. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand at the entrance of the city. What? He's to stand where? He's to stand where? And state his case before the elders of that city. You need to know something, saints. There's only one way into the city and it's through the gate. You cannot climb over the wall. You cannot come in a window. You can't sneak in on your family's reputation. No matter who you are. You have to come through the gate. Say, oh, I know all about the city of refuge. I know its dimensions. I know its height, its width, its depth. I can tell you how many people live there. I can tell you what color the walls are. But have you been through the gate? In John, Jesus said, I am the gate. I believe it's John 10, 9. I am the gate. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. When did you enter into Jesus? When can you say your life was completely encompassed by Him? Not a small part of. You're not brushing up next to the city. You're not rubbing on it. You're not walking around it. When did you enter into it? When did it swallow up your life? See, we love to add a little bit of Jesus to our lives and say we have Jesus like you have salt in your pocket. Jesus seems to say that if he doesn't have all of your life, you've lost your life. Are you hearing me? So let me ask you, is your entire life Jesus or is it a Wednesday and Sunday thing? You know, I hear these days, if you attend a church every three weeks, that that's satisfactory as a member. Well, that may be satisfactory to an ecclesiastical community. It's not satisfactory to Jesus. If you don't come to him to get bread every day, you are starving in the kingdom and you are uh, in danger of being so emaciated you die. Church, are you all the way in? Or do you have a pinky toe inside the city hoping that that will save you so your hands can still sin? It's probably worth noting that in verse 4, he goes on to give more regulations. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him in their city and give him a place to live with them. Is there anybody that cannot be admitted at the gate? If you state your case before the elders and you are not bent on an escalating premeditated sin, then you are admitted. And there's enough space in the city for every person. And it's centrally located with roads built to it. The problem is not accessibility. The problem is not proportionality. The problem is our own hearts. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused. We cannot give up our own to the world. 
If you have a brother who is moving in faith and he is stumbling, we do not give them up to the world. We need to quit talking about pastors who have fallen and start talking about the pastors that are still preaching. We need to quit talking about the time somebody tried to pray for for someone to get out of a wheelchair and they didn't get out and start talking about the fact that they tried and they prayed while you sat on your salvation. We need to not give up our loved ones to the world. Because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought, he is to stay in the city until he has stood trial before the assembly, until the death of the high priest who is serving at the time. I want you to get this. Being in the city does not absolve you of guilt. I know you think it does. Being in the city means that you've been credited with innocence until the time of your trial. Oh, Jesus. Could you hear me? We're pretty sure that when we came into contact with the gate, the trial's over. But Paul himself said that he had not yet faced that trial. We're pretty sure that if you had a warm fuzzy at the altar and someone pronounced you a USDA Christian, we're done. That's not the way the biblical type works. You have some very serious commitments when you enter the gate. One is you are credited with righteousness, but you will face trial still. And your life is tied to the life of the high priest. Are you beginning to see an analogy yet? By the way, goes on to say if you should happen to leave the city and you're killed, the avenger of blood is not guilty, you are. Go in the gate, credited with innocence until the time of trial. Go out the gate, dead. What do you think the picture is, saints? But we're pretty sure you can serve God anywhere. We're pretty sure that you're right with God because you feel a sense of nature when you take long walks with Him. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things. It really, really is. You're right with God when His Spirit bears witness with your spirit, you're right. Not a doctrine, not a security blanket. His Spirit bears witness with your spirit. I'd like to reference Colossians 3.3 for you. We're going to put that on the screen and you might want to stay in Joshua. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Is your life hidden or do you have a Jesus band-aid on? Hmm? There was an advertisement for a movie that I never saw and I'm glad I never saw it. And you need to guard your eyes for what you see. But it looks awful silly for somebody to try to hide all of their nakedness behind a washcloth, doesn't it? That's exactly what we look sometimes in the presence of God. We've got a little bitty Jesus sticker. That's about how much of Jesus we've let in our life. And we are trying to cover up all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame with that Jesus sticker. God is not a fool. You are either all the way in and He's sufficient for you or you are not yet in the gate. You're simply standing close enough to the city to enjoy its shadow. It's awful quiet in here. What would happen if the high priest died? 
the high priest dies, you're guilty. Isn't that an interesting thing? Turn with me to Numbers 35 so we can finish and hopefully tie some of these points together. Not to have a masterful sermon, hopefully to have a renovated heart. In Numbers 35, you find the most information about a city of refuge. I'd love to talk to you about the cubits outside the city wall and the differences in cubits. I'd love to talk to you about so many things. But it's right here in your Bible for you to read. Why don't we pick up in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some of the towns to be cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge for the avenger, so that the person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. Then he lists the six towns that I put on a map for you earlier. Skip with me down to verse 25. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. How did John the Baptist say that he would know who Jesus was? He's the one on whom he saw the Spirit descend and remain. How do you know who the high priest was? He's the one that was anointed as high priest, and as long as he's alive, the anointing of God remains on him. But if the accused ever goes outside the city limits, say outside the limit. How many of you know where the limit is? Isn't that an interesting thing? If it were a city, you could say, well, its city wall defines this many cubits is still in the city. Do you know that one of the greatest Bible difficulties you can find is that in Numbers 35, verse 4, he gives the limits as 1,500 feet outside the city and then turns around and gives them as 3,000 feet. He first gives it as 1,000 cubits and then he gives it as 2,000 cubits and people add them together, people try to divide them, they do all kind of things. The bottom line is you might not know exactly where the limit is, but you know when you've crossed it. You know... I'm not a preacher who teaches alcohol's wrong. Drunkenness is sin. But let me say this. How many drinks will it take to get you drunk? Do you know? How did you find out? Yeah, I just saw heads all over the room. How did you find out? You apparently crossed a limit, didn't you? How many times can you cross a limit before you die? You are only safe while you're inside the city limits. Some of you have been playing with boundary stones long enough. You're lucky you're not already dead. Are you hearing me? We need to not move boundary stones. We need to not get on the edge so far that we're in danger of falling out. Somebody want to be safe inside the city? I'm not talking about... Do you know me? Do I look like a puritanical religious person to you? The number one thing I get from people after I've talked to them for a while is, you're a pastor? And I take that as a serious compliment. Because I don't like most of the pastors I meet. I hope you love them all. I don't like them. I'm embarrassed, to be honest with you. I'm in a fraternal order of those who have abandoned the truth. 
I'm not indicting everyone. There are many pastors out there far better than me. There are many pastors out there that are amazing. It just so happens we've given the microphone to those who are not. This message is not really about them, is it? It's more about where you are and are you in the city limits. We have a right to asylum. You have no right to stand outside the city and claim asylum. Verse 26 says, clear is day. But if the accused ever goes outside, ever goes outside the city limits or the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. How many of you have been outside the city limits but are still here? <laughs> oh, yeah, every hand in the room would be up if you people were honest. You know what that's called? Mercy. It means that you transgressed God's ways and yet did not die, and that gave you the opportunity to come back. But it is not grace to continue to run outside the city walls and claim its protection. Look at verse 28. The accused must stay inside his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may he return to his own property. Do you know what this led mamas to do? I'm looking at Cass right now because when I look at Jim, I get distracted. So we just had our 21st anniversary. Isn't she pretty? Cass is pretty too, but she's my sister. And when I look at Cass, I see a mama. That's what I see. I think Cass's life has been defined by being a pastor's wife and by being a mama. That's a pretty good life, isn't it? If your child was inside the city walls, where would you want to be? What if you lived somewhere else? The mamas often moved with their sons who were being accused of murder and they were accepted into the city walls because it wasn't premeditated. And do you know what the Jewish sages said those mamas did? They fed the high priest. Do you know why they fed the high priest? Anybody putting it together yet? They fed the high priest, Charlie, because as long as the high priest is alive, their son's safe. But if the high priest should happen to die, then their son is no longer under the protection of the high priest. And if he goes home, God only knows what will happen. That a vested interest in making sure that high priest stayed alive. You know what? I bet we had some fat high priests in history. How interesting that Jesus didn't say to Peter, feed me and I'll make you king of my sheep. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. You know what causes the body of Christ to thrive? It's not feeding Jesus. It's feeding his people. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Here comes verse 30. Verse, yeah, 30. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. If you have an extravagant spiritual experience, and boy, I've had some, you can take that to the bank for you. Right? God spoke to me. Nobody else was around. As far as I'm concerned, it's gospel. But if I want you to receive it as gospel, there needs to be two or more witnesses. Is that fair? 
This means that a personal experience is good, is godly. It should be honored by all, but it's not binding on anybody until we have had two people witness it. Does that make sense? You know what this keeps us from doing? Making the gospel formulaic. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Are you allowed to accept any price to avert justice? No. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge and so allow him to go back and live in his own land before the death of the high priest. There were some who ran into the city and said, the avenger of death is now gone. How cool. I want to go back and live like I always have. You don't know any like that, do you? Do you mean to tell me it's not enough to be saved and be inside the city? Some wanted the benefits of the refuge without having to live in the refuge. God says that would be an insult to my justice. Do not allow it. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you blatantly. If you've received the lie, once saved, always saved, it is an offense to Scripture. It is an offense to Scripture and it's produced nothing except ungodly behavior among those who claim to be Christian. It's sad. Let us get to the goody. Let us get to the fed of the crab, the marrow in the bones. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Jesus was an Israelite and Israelites and Israelites alone could atone for the blood shed upon their land. Jesus was a high priest and it was Jesus' blood who was shed on the land. He both showed it innocent, or both showed it guilty in his blood being shed, and the very same blood that makes them guilty also makes them innocent. Only the God that we serve can balance justice and mercy appropriately, but he surely can do it. Saints, I'd like to tell you, you need to not mock the justice of God. The justice of God will say if you do not finish your life in the refuge that He has provided, that He has built roads to, that He has made centrally located, then you deserve to have the avenger of blood overtake you. But the mercy of God says, I've put a city near you. I've built a road to it for you. I've used a people to widen its roads for you. I've placed teachers of the law along the roads for you. I put a protective boundary around the city for you. How could we escape if we ignored such a great salvation as this? Hebrews 7, starting in verse 15, is our last verse today. You only have protection as long as the high priest is alive. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. The refuge that is Jesus Christ is not dependent upon the life of a mortal man. He is an immortal man. 
The refuge is open without ceasing, without ending, until the priest returns. But it did not tell you the day or the hour with which he would return. That means one thing for you and one thing only. You have a choice to make right now. You are either all the way in the city or you are not under the protection of the king. You are either completely swallowed up by the city, every area of your life, or you're not under protection of the king. And you say, I once was, but I'm now not. Most doors open in two directions. It's true that nobody snatches you out of the hand of God, but it's also not a prison cell. Now would be the time to react to the Spirit of God. Now would be the time to be all in. You know why? The world is waiting on you. How many of you would like to see real Christians? Raise your hand if you'd like to see real Christians. How many of you feel a responsibility to be what you would like to see? Could we stand to our feet?